Philippians chapter 1, and I'll read from verse 27. <coughs> We're bombarded with choice, aren't we? Choices, choices, choices. Recently, or some time ago, I had to renew my car, so I had a choice what to buy. And I looked on Auto Trader on the internet to discover that there were 400,000 second-hand cars I could choose from. How do you choose? Someone I know who had been on the mission field for a number of years came back to live in England and uh, went to buy some cheese in a supermarket. She went and stood in the aisle with the cheeses, was overwhelmed by the choice and walked out without buying any. because She couldn't make a choice. So I looked on Sainsbury's website and it listed 554 results under the word cheese. Just amazing choice, isn't it? We're choosing all the time. We choose what time to get up in the morning, unless you have children. They choose that time then for you, don't they? We choose our breakfast cereals as you get older for the fibre, not for the toy. We choose what to wear. But more importantly, we choose how we should live day by day. Thousands of choices over every year that we make moment by moment as we respond to the world around us in the power of the Spirit. And Paul is here encouraging the Philippians and anyone else who's going to read this letter, including you and me, to choose carefully how we live. He may encourage, exhort, demand or even command, but in the end it will be their choice as to what they do with what they hear, as it is for us as well. What do you do with what you hear from the Word of God? What we do reveals what we think of it. So we can ignore it and move on with our lives. Not actively, of course. We would never presume to do that, but sometimes that's effectively what we do. Other times we agree with it, but then go away and may take no action on it. Or in the power of the Spirit, we can embrace it and live in the good of it. The choices we make reveal something about our characters. It's not what we say in the end that really makes a big difference, but what we do about what we say. So let me read from verse 27, Philippians 1. Whatever happens, writes Paul, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look out not only Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Philippi was not an easy place to live as a Christian, as we looked when we saw in Acts chapter 16. So Paul is addressing life in the face of opposition from without, from the world around us. There were people in Philippi who were open and responsive to the gospel. We read about those people who were attracted to what Paul had to say and did and became Christians. But there were people who were threatened by the gospel and therefore antagonistic to Paul's message. Hard for us to believe, isn't it, that we preach a message of reconciliation, of grace, of love, of mercy, people would reject that. But when people see it impinging upon their lives and requiring change, they didn't want to know about it. Well, Philippi was a Roman colony, as we said, and Paul wrote his letter probably from, Philippi, from Rome. So his situation and theirs are very closely linked, as he says here, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I have had and now hear that I still have. You and I are in the same sort of situation. So his concern for the Philippians is, first of all, unity among the believers, and secondly, opposition from the pagan community around them that is bringing suffering into their lives. Paul had experienced firsthand the trouble that can come when people with vested interests are affected by the gospel. He and Silas, of course, were stripped, severely flogged, and thrown into prison for their pains. So his first comment in this passage covers both issues. He says, whatever happens to me, he's talking about whatever happens to me, whether I come and see you or not, whatever happens to me, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's a wonderful strap line, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing to stick on your mirror. If you're the Roman people, you put it on little bits of paper and then the blue tape, you attach it to the mirror. These little things. Or stick it on a door in, the, in your kitchen. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever situation you find yourselves in. Some will find ourselves in very attractive situations. We'll like them. Other situations are much more difficult to bear. Whatever, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. How should they live together? And what effect will their lives together have on the non-Christian community around them? Only as the church lives out its calling and is true to its name as being followers of Jesus will it have any impact on the community around. So we can understand now from this, the dreadful tragedy of dissension and disunity in the people of God. Can't we? That basically ruins any witness we want to bear to the world around. How could such a church of brokenness, lovelessness, disunity bear any kind of authentic witness to Christ of reconciliation and love? These folk are citizens. They're citizens of a Roman colony called Philippi. 
and they owe allegiance to Rome. So anyone who went to Philippi would immediately understand what Rome was like. Because Philippi itself was governed in the same way that Rome was, by the same rules. It was a kind of Rome in miniature. But they're not only citizens of Rome, they're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So anyone who turns up in Philippi and meets the Christians would immediately be able to understand what the kingdom of God is like. Because their lives were meant to demonstrate that. It was a kind of kingdom of God in miniature. So this is why how we live together is crucially important to the message we proclaim. Because people don't look into the Bible to find out how God is. They look at us. And the picture they discover of us is the picture they would take of God. They won't read their Bibles. They'll pick up their information from the television or magazines and things. But if we have a message from God to proclaim, that's why we have to live it out incarnationally. So Paul says his visit is unimportant, whether he sees them or not. He wants to know that they're standing firm in the faith, living in unity together, so that they can bear a witness to this difficult situation, difficult society all around. And that they should have the unity of the Spirit, standing together as one man in the gospel of Christ without fear. That would all be weakened, perhaps fatally, if internal divisions and strife were allowed to continue. So perhaps Paul, when he says, don't fear any adversary, has in mind the mob who are stirred up and violently disposed to the infant church. They want to bring it to nothing. Why does church God allow suffering? We've just been talking about healing. God heals. God always answers our prayers. Why so much suffering in the world? Well, there are clues to it. I'm not pretending to give you the answer, but there are clues to it in the New Testament. James will say, for example, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter any kind of difficulty or trial, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance develops maturity. In other words, it's the way God forms our character. Suffering is the way God forms our character. But be that as it may, it's the nature of a world under the control of the evil one. When you listen to the news of uh, organizations and groups in the Middle East now, you just are horrified by the violent, destructive nature of what goes on, sheer wickedness, and you think, what's the point of all that? Well, the world is in the grip of the evil one. It belongs to God, but it's in the grip of the evil one, and sometimes that wickedness just comes out to the fore. But know this, Paul says here, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed. God will hold to account all those who finally and willfully oppose him. So do not fear, my friends. God holds everyone to account. And God will keep his people through every trial and save those who persevere to the ends, overcomers. So as we live in a society that may be less violent and less persecutory, if that's such a word, I make up words as I go along. I don't suppose there is one, is there? Less inclined to persecute us in violent ways. Nonetheless, our calling is to stand firm in the gospel, not to back off or be fearful. But there's also tensions from within because any group of people, and we will be the same, 
there are tensions among us. So on Tuesday, when you meet as a church for a meeting, you know there will be tensions there. Not because people are being difficult, but because every one of you sees the world in a slightly different way. And your view is valid. So bring it on Tuesday, even if you disagree with everybody else. <clears throat> it's not what we have to say, it's often the way we say it that's a big difference. So we're not trying to be difficult, we're just saying, I have a view on this and can I share it so that we all have benefit from it? And we listen to one another. So we live with the tensions within. And he speaks about attitudes that will destroy the unity and just mentions two. He could have mentioned a lot, but he mentions two, just two, selfish ambition and vain conceit. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. Both spelt with a capital I, aren't they, basically? It's what I want that matters. I'm only interested in what's going to happen for me. I have selfish ambition. Nothing wrong with having ambition. I have ambition that the Lord Jesus Christ will be known throughout Hurstmansu, don't you? That's a good ambition. But selfish ambition about what part I might play in that is not a good thing. So he says those things destroy unity when I'm looking out for me all the time. Vain conceit, seeing how it affects me. He mentions one, just one, that promotes unity. It's one good one, isn't it? Humility. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. Humility is accepting others as they are, accepting ourselves as they are, not wanting my way, but willing that God's will be done. So we can choose. Choose those attitudes that will destroy unity, putting me first, or we can choose to have those attitudes that will promote unity. Promote. So if I'm in a church meeting and I think I have a valid thing to say, but it will go against the grain here, would now be a good time to say it or not? Would this be the right context for saying it or not? If I said it now, I'd get it off my chest, but perhaps it would be more harmful. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll sit on it at the moment. And I'll go and talk to someone after the meeting and say, I have this view, how do you think this ought to be shared? That's having the common interest, isn't it? Rather than just wanting to say my thing in a meeting or that sort of scenario. So Euodia and Syntyche, if that's how you pronounce their lovely names in chapter 4 verse 2, are choosing to be at loggerheads with one another. And if they're like other people, they've probably forgotten what the reason is they are at loggerheads with one another. They just are. But what does that say about their characters? They would rather choose to be at loggerheads with one another than see the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What does that say about them? In chapter 2, verse 14, he talks about complaining and arguing. What does that say about the people involved? That they'd rather complain and argue with one another and create unhappiness and disunity than seek the common good? So in this paragraph, he addresses those whose choice is selfish ambition and vain conceit. And in a moment, he will say, before you run away with the idea that I'm giving you an impossible standard to live, let me just remind you of the choices that Jesus made. We've just celebrated Easter, wonderful time, isn't it? Wonderful time. Break out the champagne. But he says, this is Jesus' choice, isn't it? It's not an ethical masterpiece. It's not, it's not a sort of a, a song 
for Christians to sing so much as a description of the choices Jesus made. Who being in very nature God, so he doesn't have to make choices for anybody else. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. That is a huge choice, isn't it? He's willing, somehow or other, and if you can get your mind round it, somehow or other he made himself nothing, whatever that means. It must mean in somehow or other that he let go of some of the advantages of being God. I can't put that into words, but something along those lines. Why would he do that? When he has everything, a fully satisfied life, which needs nothing at all, why would he let any of that go? Because of you and me, my friends. Not for his sake. It's not for his sake. It's for our sake. He made that huge choice that he will come and do something about the predicament we were in. So when Paul is telling us, think carefully about your choices, he holds before us, rightly so, not another person. Look at this person and the choices they make, but God himself, Jesus Christ. He made that incredible choice. But having made that nothing, he took the nature of a servant. He could have grasped at privilege. He could have said, well, I'll go and sort them out, but I'm going as the empire builder, as the emperor, as the king of kings. I'm going to be born in a palace and I'm going to have servants serving me. Couldn't he? could have done that, but he chose not to do that. That was a second and separate choice. He chose to come at the low end of the pile. The Jews in those days were a non-nation. They were nowhere. They were just an adjunct of the Roman Empire. They were the big guys. The, the Jews were just one of the oppressed nations. And he comes to that oppressed nation, and then he comes to be born in the ordinary circumstances. This will be the sign to you, says the angel to the shepherds. He's going to be born in exactly your sort of situation, the kind of people you are. He chose no advantages whatsoever. He didn't have a home to live in. He had to borrow a stable, and he had to borrow a cross and a tomb, and in between had nowhere to live. This is a man with no advantages. He chose that. He didn't need to choose it, but he chose that way. He came as one of us. Because if he came as a king, we know, people would have said, well, it's all right for you. If I had all that you have, life would be fine. But we can never say that to Jesus. He left everything that was good about being God, advantageous. And then he took the nature of a servant. It doesn't end there. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. That was a choice. He prayed in the garden so earnestly that his perspiration was drops of blood. The angels had to strengthen him, that he was exhausted. Three times he pleaded with his father, please, not this. His father said, if that's the way, son. He said, okay, I'll go your way then. It was a choice. It was a choice. Not for him. God could have sent 6,000 legions of angels to rescue him and zap the rest of us. But he wasn't going to do that. Not for his sake, but for our sake. So when we're thinking about what we would do, those little bracelets that people wear with the WWJD on them, or little things that say, what would Jesus do, is an absolutely crucial attitude to have, isn't it? Not just in the big decisions, obviously them as well, but the small decisions. 
those little interactions with people, the things that can leave a barb in someone's side that will irritate them for the rest of their lives or leave them with the fragrance of Jesus, those moments. Friends of ours, at the moment not linked with a particular church, they're just looking to see where God might lead them, have had the joy of going to different churches um, all around and had to have had some lovely experiences and also some pretty tragic ones where they went into churches and were completely ignored by everybody throughout the whole time. No big deal for them, except they're not going to go back there. But supposing they'd not been Christians who had been sensitive to the Spirit of God doing something and had wandered into a church thinking, well, this is where I find God, and had no engagement whatsoever with anybody. Wouldn't happen here, would it? Definitely wouldn't. But you think that leaves a barb in people's minds. It's not a big thing, it's a small thing, isn't it? It's just people not bothering. So we're talking about big decisions and small decisions. What would Jesus do? We read the scriptures in order to know what Jesus did, so we might know what he would do. Here's, I want two ideas just to prompt you in the coming week. I don't know what your week is going to be like, but here, God has a pattern of work and rest. And you might be smiling wryly inwardly to yourself, saying, I know there's a lot of work in this coming week, but not a lot of rest, Charles. Well, see if you can recognise the breaks in your working week, whatever it is, whether you get paid for your work or not. Brother Lawrence was a monk of the 17th century, and he was a lay brother who worked all the time in the kitchen of the monastery, monastery in Burgundy, and he didn't like it. And he wasn't much good at it. He used to drop everything. He was awkward. He broke things. So he wasn't much good at it. He didn't like it. He did it all the time. And he had to discover how to find God in that particular scenario. So he gradually developed the attitude in his daily life in which the presence of God was as real to him in the sink service as it was in the monastery's rhythm of prayer. And he wrote the book, Practicing the Presence of God. And he says, we must, during all our labour and in all else we do, pause for some short moment, as often indeed as we can, to worship God in the depth of our heart, to savour him, though it be in passing, and as it were, by stealth. And he says, you have to find a moment, even in your busy, monotonous, boring lives, cluttered lives, to discover that God is with you. Not that discover where he is. He is with you. So here, what about this? What about the space between meetings when your day is full of meetings and you have to go from one to the other? I think that is a space between the two which can easily be filled up with dropping the first meeting and picking up the things of the second meeting and trying to get yourself in preparation but rather to spend that time saying, Lord, I know you're with me. You have been with me in the last meeting. And you're going to be with me in this next meeting. I've only got a minute and a half to get there. But Lord, let me worship you now in this moment, even as you're walking down the corridor doing it. What about a cancelled meeting or a cancelled lunch? You had planned to go somewhere with someone and they didn't turn up and you feel deflated. Well, you can use that time, can't you, to enjoy a lunch with God. Enjoy time with God. Take the time to go and pray in a church or a pub. What about if you have to travel in your car, especially if someone else is driving the car, like a taxi driver, or on a bus, travelling from one place to another, to use that time 
just to enjoy the presence of God. Pray for the people on the bus. Pray for the bus driver. Thank God that he's with you on the bus. Enjoy his presence. Are you looking out the window, Lord? Because I am. I'm wondering what you've made. Coffee and tea breaks, especially if you have to go from where you normally work to somewhere else to do it. Try and find the parts of rest in your day where you can acknowledge the presence of God and worship him, though it be only seconds or moments. Just take your time to do it. Just slow down slightly. And here's a second. Look out for the rest times, but be prompted by reminders. In Deuteronomy, God instructed Moses, these commandments that I give you today are to be impressed on your children, talk about them, write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. So the Jews developed this system of fixing a mezuzah, which had a sort of a reminder of the law of God fixed to the door frame. So every time they walked through the door frame, they would see it there and it would be a prompt to worship. Human nature hasn't changed. We too need prompts every day to worship God. Something that acts as a constant reminder. I know one pastor who has an old-fashioned desk with proper little drawers and things, and in his top drawer here, he has three nails and a piece, two pieces of wood. And he says, frequently through the day, I just open my drawer, take them out, and put them on. It reminds me of the cross. It reminds me that all the things I'm worrying about really don't have that much value compared to what he's done. And I put them back on the cross and I carry on. Or the drawer and I carry on. So if you're sitting at a computer all the time, every time you start a program and it does that little waiting and it loading and you're sitting there tapping your foot because it's 14 milliseconds since the last thing it did, you know, that sort of thing, then you can be saying, Lord, fill me up with your spirit. Let me have your strength. Take those few moments that are driving you nuts, especially if it's downloading 2.3 gigabytes. And since we live in a rural area, it takes you one hour, 45 minutes to do that. Well, I'm not going to suggest you sit there for one hour, 45 minutes, asking the Lord to fill you up, because you've probably got other things to do. But at a time, you can do it, can't you? Be prompted by those things. You could put a screensaver on so every time you've left your computer alone, you come back and there's a little verse of scripture bouncing about on your screen. Just reminding you that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, even this computer. A desk calendar some people use, just turning it over, reminding them of something each day. But when the telephone rings, instead of snatching it up for the first ring, leave it for two or three minutes and say, Lord, someone is on the other end of the phone. I want to speak to them as if I was speaking to you, even if they're trying to sell me something. <laughs> doorways. What about doorways? Being places where you go through. And every time you go through a doorway, say, Lord, you're going with me into whatever it is I'm going into now. And you can use just a passage of going through a doorway to prompt you to praise God. Or windows, as you look out on the, of the window, if you have the chance, some people work in offices where they're, they're 300 yards from a window, aren't they? There's no natural light in them at all. But if you've got a window and you can look out, it can remind you that the earth is the Lord's and he's caring for everything. Because Matthew closed his gospel with these words, surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So as we think about the choices we'll make in this coming week, what would Jesus do? Remember that he is with you. 
Therefore, as much as you can, in those creative ways, and you'll think of plenty of other creative ways of doing it, think before I jump into something, what would be the right choice to make? Or maybe not to make a choice yet because I don't know what to do. But the Lord is with me and we worship him. So just as I close, what I'd like to do is ask, all of us are making loads of choices this coming week, that's not what I'm asking, but it could be that one or two of us have got big choices to make this week. Has anyone got that scenario? Because it would be good to pray for you, that's all. And we'd like to do that if someone's got, well, I've actually got a big choice and I don't quite know what I'm going to make. It's really important, I'd value prayer. Does that apply to anyone? Might not. But if it does, it would be good to pray for you. No? Okay. Let's pray. Father, we're deeply aware that so often the choices we make reflect our own desires and feather our own nests. But we want to make the kind of choices that are consistent with living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make the kind of choices that reflect the kingdom of God and its principles. That is our endeavour, Lord, and we've been trying to do it in the past and we will try to do it in the future, but please give us your Holy Spirit. May we have his wisdom and insight. May he prompt us at those crucial moments to choose right. Not that we're paralysed not to make choices, but that you will guide us through the day as we relax in your company and offer you every moment of every day. May you fill us with your spirit to overflowing so as we walk with him, in step with him in this coming week, we will find the choices we are making reflect the kind of choices that honour and glorify you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen.